the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. This episode of Magic Markets is brought to you by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management, South Africa's leading provider of alternative investment funds and co-investment strategies. With over 8 billion rand in assets under management across South Africa, the UK and the USA, Westbrook provides South African high net worth individuals, wealth managers and institutions with a unique gateway to the world of alternative investments. This includes private debt, hybrid capital, real estate, private equity and venture capital. Visit westbrook.co.za to find out more. Westbrook Alternative Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider, FSP number 46750. Before we start this fantastic episode of Magic Markets, I do need to tell you that the contents of this podcast are for information purposes only and they do not constitute investment advice, nor do they represent a solicitation of any member of the public to invest in any security. The investment vehicles managed by Westbrook Alternative Asset Management are available to qualified or sophisticated investors only. All listeners should seek professional financial advice prior to making any investment. Welcome to episode 114 of Magic Markets. It's a truly international show this week. We've got uh, obviously my co-host Mohamed Nalu who always does this with me. He's sitting in Canada. And then we have the team from Westbrook all the way from the UK. So really looking forward to that chat and welcoming them. But before we get to Team Westbrook, Mo, hello. Welcome to a new week. Hi, Ghost. Uh, also hi to the team at, at Westbrook. And we'll introduce you guys shortly. But no strangers to the show. I'm really excited about this one, Ghost, because you know quite often we introduce concepts on a show. We discuss a lot of stuff. But it's very important to go back and recheck those and see you know how have they done What's actually happened in the market? How has that impacted something that we may have discussed in the past? So in that kind of context, very excited to be introducing the team from Westbrook. Guys, welcome to the show. Absolutely, Mo. And that's just as true when it's alternative assets. You know, even though we can't mark to market these things, that doesn't mean that the themes are not hitting them week in and week out and the things are changing all the time. So James Lightbody, Richard Asherson, thank you so much for joining us all the way from the UK. You guys are cuddling there in a room. It looks very cozy uh, in true UK style. It, it, you know, the rooms there are cozy. I mean, this is what the UK is all about, right? Uh, it's good to have you. I think, you know, before we delve into any of the sort of update type stuff, and we should not assume that our listeners have, you know, heard from either of you before, even though you've both been on the show. So I think just maybe a recap of, you know, Yield Plus. Sure, Ghost, and, and thanks for having us again. So look, Westbrook uh, runs a fund called Westbrook Yield Plus. It is an open-ended private debt fund that provides investors with high-yielding fixed income alternatives through a portfolio of diversified loans, predominantly debt transactions within the UK. They're all bespoke and structured through our investment team. The fund provides a unique investment advantage to our investors driven by our asymmetric return slash risk profile by focusing on providing our loans to low and mid-market companies as well as real estate-backed sponsors. All of our loans are secured, generally with hard assets as our primary form of security. 
and the the fund really benefits from you know shorter duration loans which are able to provide our investors with liquidity should they need the fund targets a cash return of somewhere between cash plus 5 to cash plus 7 so in today's environment and I'm sure James and I'll get into the details of this we're looking to do between 8 and 10% net in pounds to investors in this year and the focus of this fund, and I think you guys know this from previous discussions, is capital preservation. We're not here to shoot the lights out. We're not looking for great returns. We're looking for consistent compounding of, of our capital. And we have successfully done that for five years now with no down months since inception. That's impressive. No down months since inception is, is pretty good <laughs> for any business. Yeah, annualized at just over 7%. And we've done about 35% in total for investors since inception. I mean, that, that, that's very admirable, guys. And I want to get into it because, you know, we know it's debt-focused in terms of the fund. A lot of it is underpinned by, by real estate. Real estate's a sector that I particularly have liked over the longer term. But one of the key global themes, certainly over the course of the last year, and definitely from the last time we spoke to you guys about Yield Plus, have been interest rates. I mean, there have been eight successive increases in UK interest rates over the last year. Uh, you've also had a lot of political risk in the UK. I mean, you've got a really tough economy there. You've had three different prime ministers. There's been a lot going on in that specific jurisdiction. So maybe just if you could highlight to us, how has that impacted, if at all, the fund? How has it impacted, I guess, you know, your targeted returns when rates move from practically zero in terms of risk-free rates to around 4%? Uh, and what does that mean for investments that you've maybe locked in already? as well as for the pipeline of investments that you would look at getting into the fund as well. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of the main theme that's kind of hit the whole world, but it's hit the UK materially in the last year. And just to contextualize that a little bit more, which you may not be used to, I mean, me coming from South Africa also, is the last time that interest rates were above 1% was in 2009. So you've kind of had 12 years of below 1% interest rates, and suddenly they went from 0 to 4% in a year. You know, contrast that with 2008, they went from 5% down to 1% in a year, now they've gone the other way. So real estate itself is an asset class that is quite correlated with interest rates. In theory, you know, the textbook will tell you it's perfectly correlated, but it's really not in practice. But, you know, the general impact that people would say is that if, if interest rates go up, then cap rates, which is a valuation metric for real estate, also goes up. And that, in theory, means values should go down. So, you know, that's the sort of simplistic impact of real estate. But if you're looking kind of the broad impact across the sort of uh, lending market, really you're seeing sort of not only in, in theory are values going down. In, in reality, they often sort of don't go down as much as you'd think. Um, but that's a kind of separate point. But banks were, were, were sort of lending quite aggressively in the few years leading up to this at sort of high LTVs because it was a very competitive market. They've sort of pulled back quite aggressively in this market. They're not sure where values are going to go. Sort of the liquidity for debt's gone down and sort of values are somewhat uncertain. While at the same time, you've still got kind of the same, um, you know, quality assets with quality income that are sitting there while there's sort of a big pullback of funding does mean that if you're sort of sitting there quite, um, you know, well positioned with liquidity and not a massive book, um, that, that you sort of went too aggressive in the last couple of years, you know, you can take advantage of that. And that's kind of broadly the position that we've been in. And I think, Mo, I think from what we're seeing, um, especially over the last years, is a there's definitely been a decrease in activity of trading of re real estate assets. 
Um, and that, that's driven predominantly by the increase in interest rates and, and the lack of certainty over where interest rates are going. And that obviously has had an effect on not only the capital supplies going into the private debt market and real estate debt specifically, but also the cost of funding within that space. I think that's important. And I want to just touch on something that James had put on the radar, right, which are cap rates. And the reason I ask this question specifically, and maybe there are a couple of other metrics we can get into as well, but I want to focus specifically on cap rates because it links back to the kind of macro question I was asking is, if I look at activity here in Canada, for example, you're absolutely right in that, you know, in theory, the prices should have come down. But if I look at deals in terms of where people are still looking to do deals, those cap rates still remain remarkably compressed. And I mean, depending on which sector you're looking at, whether that's industrial or commercial and so forth, you're still looking at cap rates at like 3%, 5%. That's remarkably compressed in this particular market. Maybe just for some context, what's happened with kind of expected cap rates in the UK versus realized cap rates? If you could quantify that for us, because I think as a global investor, it's very important to realize where kind of North American markets are versus UK markets. And specifically because the UK has these is very direct linked to South African investors who are predominantly our listeners on the show today. Yeah, so I mean, my comment on that would be, as you said, so the macro point is that interest rates have gone up, and in theory, cap rates should have gone up as well. But when you sort of into different asset classes within real estate, it's like quite different and different cities, they're quite different. So this is where sort of there's a big advantage to being on the ground here, relative to trying to invest from abroad. And why we're been quite excited because we're very tapped into that market. But for example, things that were traded very aggressively, like the large last mile logistics industrial units with sort of three and a half percent cap rates, those have moved up to kind of five percent. So that's quite a big jump. Some offices have in sort of regional centers haven't moved up that much at all. And the, the absolute prime offices in like central London, you know, they're just so scarce that although people will be saying, oh, well, I'm going to bid a sort of higher cap rate, often the sellers are just deciding not to sell. So you're stuck in a situation where there's just like no liquidity in that market. So it's kind of, it depends on, on the actual situation. But across the market, you're probably looking at 50 basis points to 1% increase. Um, there definitely has been an increase. And a question from my side, just how you think about the capital stack when you do these deals. So something I've obviously observed in property as well over the past couple of years, and you've referenced it as well, is the way certainly in the South African funds, the net asset value in the fund has often not really moved higher because of the cap rate issue. So even though there's inflation and people talk about property as an inflation hedge, the net asset value of the fund often trades sideways or lower because a lot of the property valuations are actually coming down, even though the yield on the properties is, is effectively improving and the net operating income might be improving depending on inflation and depending on whether it's in retail, for example, and it's on the right side of that. I mean, office properties have obviously been smashed. This big negative reversion still in South Africa. I don't know how closely you guys follow the South African real estate market. Obviously, your focus is UK. But I mean, there's still big negative reversions in office down here. I don't know if it's still the case up there. So it's a complicated beast, property. People think it's this simple, you know, they, they do this sort of, well, I'll buy to let it flat you know, for the rest of my life. And I think that's what property investing is. And that's definitely not the case. So I guess one of the complexities, you know, that you've picked up on there is the loan to value. When you go and you raise debt against these properties at a time when interest rates are low, the cap rates are also nice and low. So the valuations are very high on these properties. You can borrow a lot of money against them. And suddenly over time, interest rates go up your debt becomes more expensive and to make it even worse, the value of the properties has come down. And suddenly that loan to value can look very different, even if you haven't actually gone and borrowed more money. So these are the complexities in the space, obviously, and this is the game you know, that you guys play. 
So how do you think about how to participate in the capital stack in that? You know, do you leave a lot of headroom in your loan to value? You know, how do you make sure that you are actually getting the right sort of outcome for investors in this game? Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of raise a good point. And as you say, I mean, I, I was in this this game in South Africa at Rand Merchant Bank doing real estate. And there in South Africa, you're very much constantly running scenarios when you're assessing a deal about sort of comparative rentals, what will happen to rentals if they're down 10, 15%, what happens to cap rates if they go up 1, 2%. You want to kind of assess sort of how well secured you are in like various different downside scenarios. So we kind of took that approach always on this side. So we've always been looking for sort of downside protection. We'll never lend against something, even at the peaks when when there's very little headroom um, or fat for things to to trade down. And we probably missed a few deals because, you know, we wouldn't be super aggressive on sort of the, the value people were, were putting on in the last few years when they assumed cap rates would be kind of off a zero base forever. And really, we've just kind of taken the same approach um, now. So, you know, we've always been sort of ground up, very fundamental, um, doing those kind of scenarios. And then when you're assessing transactions today, we'll be asking the same thing. It's like, well, we're not going to lend against last year's valuation. You're going to want an updated valuation. And even then, you're going to be stressing that based on, you know, where rentals are going and can those tenants handle inflation pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the sort of very detailed way we're going into it. But obviously, you know, if you're an investor looking at the sector, I would be quite cautious if, if you were backing people who weren't going into that level of detail. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think, I, think, um, I think, look, it's a very, very interesting to triangulate where value is at the moment. It's incredibly difficult, just given the lack of constant trading that's going on in the market. And, and as James said, the banks are pretty well capitalized at the moment. Most, you know, a lot of investors are well capitalized. There's not a lot of stress coming through the system as yet. We thought that there would be a lot more stress coming through the system pressure from banks and the likes of HMRC on tax payments, etc. I think what's really interesting is when we look at value, Mo, we look at liquidity. So for us, value is only value if there's liquidity in the market for assets, right? So our focus is always on how do we get liquidity out of this asset at, and, and what's our level of cover. And Westbrook focuses on what we call our, the risk philosophy and framework that we work in. And simplistically, we look at, you know, the three C's. Firstly, we look at character, right, which is the character of the borrower, that we're lending against, right? Who are they? What's their track record? How have we gotten to them? Why are they coming to a firm like Westbrook, right? They're all, you know, all kind of pointed in the in with with a little bit of skepticism, but you can understand why. But character is first and foremost. Then it's collateral, and there's no order. But I mean, we look at collateral, obviously being the assets, the security that we're taking, how liquid that security is, what our routes to liquidity is, etc. And the third being cash flow. And I think in this environment, and, and generally all environments, cash flow is king. So we've been migrating our portfolio to look for much more cash-producing, income-producing assets within the real estate debt market. And just last to add, I think we were very fortunate. We, we held our ground in the last couple of years. When base rates were zero, we, we found it really hard to compete on pricing because our cost of funding is higher than you know, the banks and, and other funds out there. And as a result, we, we didn't do that much, right? Our, our portfolio has remained quite lean um, and at, at quite good loan-to-values. And from that perspective, we started this year, or I mean, even last year, on, on quite a good footing because we're actually far more competitive now relative to the banks and the other, other lenders out there. And we really are starting to find compelling deal flow at what we believe are attractive valuations and attractive points of liquidity. 
before I let Mo jump in, which I know he's itching to do, I just wanted to say, you know, the world of debt with those three C's, it's a bit like being the fun police at the kids' party, you know. Yes, the jungle gym might be a lot of fun, but have you thought of this and have you thought of that? That's what it's like when you're managing debt money, is it's not about... You should join our investment committee. Guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's not just like, what is the big dream here? That's lovely. You know, where can this go wrong? And if it goes wrong, what do we lose and how do we get out of it? It's a very different way of thinking. I mean, the only thing we focus on, right, in, in our investment in these sessions is, are we safe from a capital perspective? If all goes wrong, can we get our money back? Right. Yeah. And really, are we giving up potentially is opportunity cost of the return and the opportunity cost of maybe putting that into a, another transaction. And really, where we focus from a risk perspective is once we've kind of gotten rid of the, the capital loss risk, then we're taking other types of risk. We're taking liquidity risk, we're taking duration risk, we're taking other, other types of risk, but those risks in our mind are manageable and we can price for those. Um, and, and that's what I think we've done pretty effectively. Just wanted to say on the, on the NAV side of things, when you own an asset, right, in this environment, you kind of are getting hit from both sides, right? Because when you're looking at your NAV on real estate equity, and I'm not discounting real estate equity, we think it's a great sector and we think it's getting definitely far more compelling in this environment to be picking up assets at attractive prices. But you're getting hit on the valuation side because cap rates are increasing, you know, and then you're getting hit because if you do have leverage and you haven't locked in a fixed rate interest swap, your income profile is coming down. So your value is getting almost, you're getting double hit, right? And, and that that's obviously a challenge with leverage in any structure. And that's why leverage You've got to be very careful when putting leverage into structures, whether you're a lender or a borrower. And, and again, we, we stress that. So you never want to over-lever any structure. And, and when it comes to what we do, we would rather say no to something than try and win it on you know, over-levering and getting a higher return. Our focus is getting the right return, which we call risk-adjusted, and getting our capital preservation, our, our whole mandate's capital preservation. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am going to jump in here because I, I think from being the no police, it actually reinforces a message we put across in, in last week's podcast as well, where we said in investing, more often than not, it's actually about saying no rather than saying yes. So and I fully appreciate that from a, a risk management perspective. Richard, I almost think you preempted my next question to a degree in that you've touched on some of the points and I want to quantify that. So what I'm going to actually ask here specifically is that we know how the risk management impacts kind of where you decide to place deals. Now, that's on the risk side of things. But from an investor's perspective, or even, I guess, from the, the, the deal perspective, if I were coming to Westbrook and looking for funding, you know what? So on the one hand, what is the spread that I would be looking at paying over banks? That's one question. And I guess the, the flip side of that question is, you know, what does that translate to in terms of returns for your investors? But then importantly, I recall from our last discussion on Yield Plus specifically, in that it does embed some degree of inflation protection. And you had mentioned kind of swapping, you know, your fixed for floating profiles. How much of this is actually protected from an inflation-linked perspective? You know, do you embed a lot of that into some of the deals that you guys do? Because that would introduce... I guess, some complexity, but attractiveness to the payoff profile in a time when inflation arguably is running as hot as it's been over the last year? Well, I guess sort of the, the way we talk about a hedge on inflation, and to be clear, it's not a perfect hedge on inflation, but if, you know, the, the way that the, the central banks around the world, especially including the Bank of England, fight inflation is by raising base rates. So the higher that inflation goes, the higher they push interest rates up. And sort of most of our loans are done on a base rate plus margin basis, which means that as base rates go up, our sort of total return on the transaction goes up. So it gets more expensive for the borrower 
but sort of we're compensated for the fact that you know the base rate has has gone up. So that does hedge the inflation return point to an extent. The the the, the point you you raised a little bit earlier on there was also sort of you know how are we when you're talking about the margin over the banks. It's actually like slightly different in in quite a few instances here, where sort of especially these these high quality but not sort of super premium assets that banks were lending against and they've like totally pulled back from those types of borrowers actually don't really have um, anyone to go to anymore. So whereas Westbrook wouldn't have been competitive there at all because the high street banks are super cheap, they're now coming to us saying, hey, we've got this exact same asset. It's valued down a little bit because cap rates have gone up and, you know, we need a funding solution and we haven't changed our pricing at all. So really you're getting a risk adjuster return with high quality asset, high quality income, and, and your pricing's the same. So sort of all in, we quite like those types of transactions where it's really just the fact that banks have pulled back and you're filling the void. That's sort of quite attractive. I mean, we're probably 20 to 30% more expensive than the banks. On a, on a, it's hard to work on a relative basis. Probably in, in the last three years, we're probably 50% more expensive. So the margin has narrowed. The quality of our assets and the quality of the risk we're taking has also decreased. In, in, you know, so we're arguably getting a better risk-adjusted premium in this environment than we were a few years ago. So we're able to attract effectively double-digit returns on 50 to 60% loan-to-value credit or loans, right? And you know, we just think, given the environment you're in, it's just a great asset class to be allocating to personally as a you know to get a you know that kind of yield so that that 11 or 12 take off two and a half percent for fees and costs that's what we're aiming to deliver to our investors right so that's why we're getting this kind of nine midpoint of nine eight to ten percent return profile so as an example during covid we did a transaction where we were called in last minute to fund a transaction where hsbc had given terms and due to covid the valuation had a disclaimer that had an extra ca- a caveat in the, in the policy, which the, the values, you know, had said due to COVID, they wouldn't be able to assess where the value may be in times. And HSBC decided not to lend, not begrudging HSBC at all, by the way, which was absolutely their, their right to do so. We were able to attract three times more premium on a lend in that environment than, you know, than HSBC. Okay, it was shorter duration. And, you know, we, we acted pretty quickly. So it is a combination of of a few factors that we're able to get that risk premium. But ultimately, we're not in a dissimilar environment now, given where capital supplies are and where uncertainty around valuations are, are placed. So that's super interesting. And it's a great way of seeing how you guys can compete against the banks. So it's speed of execution and maybe just going the extra mile on some of the analysis, if, if I'm hearing correctly. I mean, there must be other good examples that are sort of top of mind of recent deals you've done. You know, as you sort of taken advantage of current market conditions, looked for this income focus, as is your mandate. You know, what else is sort of top of mind that you could share with us? Something you've done in practice? Yeah, I think a good example is one that um, we're we're concluding at the moment, actually, which is in Central Leeds. So kind of as good as it gets, office in Central Leeds, sort of fully let. It's part of sort of a very large group that owns hundred million pounds worth of property. So so a large group. They have a senior incumbent high street bank, which is just sort of one of the main banks at sort of 50% LTV in there on the old valuations. And they needed to to add a bit of leverage to this um, to go and buy another property. Now, the high street bank has said, you know, this is for whatever reason, not a core client and they're sort of not increasing leverage. Well, they don't generally like to go much about 50% anyway. 
Now, normally sort of one of, you know, the, the sort of secondary banks or, or one of the debt funds would have done this at a, a still a few percentage margin over the, the base rate. But, you know, this, this just sort of wasn't there this time around. We have like a local network around uh, Leeds and, and they sort of brought this transaction to us and they know the sponsors and we reference the sponsors. So we kind of tick the box on high quality uh, operators and then they needed a bit of extra leverage. But as you said, we sort of had a new valuation done. So the value sort of came down. The income profile was still high quality. It's still in central leads and still has a big guarantee from this bigger group behind it. And then we went and lent, as I said, at a bit of higher leverage um, and, and got a margin that we never would have got sort of a year, two years ago on that. So, you know, we're, we're earning a very good return um, and still super well covered. And that, that wouldn't have even have come to us a year, two years ago. So, that, you know, that's kind of quite a good example. And to give you an idea, in terms of the tenant quality, I mean, more than half of that is led to government, you know, on a quite an extensive uh, weighted average lease term across, across the portfolio and well covered in terms of income that covers our, our loan interest payments. And then in addition to that, we've got our extra collateral in the form of the balance sheet that, you know, they're giving us a full unlimited corporate guarantee. Again, in, in days gone by, you would have done this to the SPV, um, which effectively is a special purpose company, which only has that asset and had no outside collateral. So, you know, we've ticked the box on character. We've ticked the box on collateral. And the cash flow in this, in, in, in this transaction really was the cherry on, on top for us. Yeah, you need more great leads like that, if you'll forgive the worst pun I'm sure you've heard all week. Yeah, that does sound like a good deal, though. And unlike in South Africa, the government actually pays its rent. So, you know, the joys of the UK. I mean, I suppose the other things, you know, you're not busy burning millions and millions and millions of, well, rands or pounds on generators to keep the lights on. I mean, property in the UK at the moment has got to be a little bit of a better bet than in South Africa. There's some big, big issues down here, squeezing margins um, severely. So, you know, you're not really dealing with those in the UK. I think, Ghost, I mean, that does raise sort of an interesting point, which I assume you're talking about equity there. And one thing that was clear, as I said, interest rates have been basically zero for 12 years in the UK. It became almost common knowledge was sort of ingrained in, in a lot of folks that that the way to make good returns, double-digit returns, was always in equity because you'd never, if you're loaning a 10% interest rate, then you must be taking like a ton of risk. So what this change has done and hasn't quite sort of caught on across the market yet is that you can actually get like sort of a double-digit return in debt and it may actually be tough to get there in equity for the next while because asset values are coming down. So it's actually interesting in the relative risk position, debt relative to equity is, you know, just for the next while, you know, and obviously there's still good equity deals out there. But if you're looking at the overall market, debt does look quite attractive relative. So guys, I think we've got a couple of minutes left. And I think, you know, to tie it all together, an interesting point for people to understand would just be this environment pre-COVID versus post-COVID. Is it you know, very different for you. I mean, you've obviously talked to a lot of reasons in which it is very different. You know, you're getting, it sounds like actually better deals, um, better opportunities for deals, asset values that are coming down, dislocations in the market, mispricing. It's all the stuff that gets investors very excited, especially in private deals. Mispricing is where you kind of make your money. And, you know, is this good or bad, I suppose, overall as a UK private debt investor through Westbrook? I mean, I can guess the answer, but obviously I'm keen to hear it from you. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's probably overall uh, positive, as you're saying. There, there is sort of, there, there are a couple of changes. As Richard mentioned, we're shifting our focus from assets that weren't as liquid, a sort of very big market before COVID that we had several partners that still then then that sort of high quality. Um, but there was a big market for doing bridge transactions, generally where 
the takeout would be, you know, sometimes development finance or, or something like that. We never actually lent against ground up development ourselves. But sort of the stage before that was a very liquid market in the UK, unlike South Africa. But, you know, when liquidity has slowed a bit in that market, you know, because those business plans only finish several years out. And anything with duration obviously gets discounted more when interest rates go up. So sort of that, that market, the liquidity has dried up a bit. So definitely our focus has shifted to the end where that is income producing, you know, which is kind of more our, our speciality anyhow. So that's probably the biggest shift is shifting towards like more liquid assets and getting good returns at the same time. I mean, guys, our focus and, and our advantage is we're fundamental investors, right? And we don't, we try not, you know, move with the market, right? And we price debt and we price equity for what we believe the real risk is not where the market's pricing it. And I think from our perspective, it's coming in line and it's getting there. It's not there. I mean, I think that it's getting to the point where it's it's becoming quite attractive to be a, a debt investor in, in the space. We're probably a couple of years ago, it was marginal, right? Given the equity returns that you were seeing, right? And the opportunity cost you were taking. The one thing I would say though is, don't get me wrong. I think the, you know, base rates is also, a, a, I guess, a, a benchmark for risk, right? So increasing rates is increasing risk, right? And we are in a high risk environment, both economically and politically than we were. I mean, we've had a lot. We had Brexit and, you know, COVID and you know, it just seems like there's a black swan every day. But, you know, we are in a period of increased risk. And that means that you've got to be really, really skeptical and you've got to really focus on the core, which is how are we going to get our money back? Are we going to get the right return? If not, we pass. And someone very wise that I used to work with used to say, deals are like buses. One comes around every five minutes, right? And it's absolutely true. So if it's not now, we'll, we'll keep on being patient and wait for the right deal. Yeah, I mean, that, that really does resonate with me. I think, you know, my late dad had always said, you know, be willing to walk away from a deal. And that, that's kind of the same advice, I think, that, you know, Richard, your, your, uh, one of the people you'd work with had shared with you. So, you know, again, I mean, capital at the end of the day is is scarce. You've got to protect that. You've got to be very responsible with that. Uh, and I must say, you know, the reason we put this discussion on alternatives on the table is if you're looking at double-digit returns in hard currencies in a market where earnings, you know, have come off, even in the listed space, in a market where the risks are heightened, you can't turn your nose away at that. Double-digit returns in hard currency is very compelling and certainly makes for a a strong case, I would say, from an asset allocation perspective, certainly for sophisticated investors who have the ability to consider unlisted investments, to consider a much wider range of assets and investments globally. Uh, unfortunately, guys, that's all I think we have time for this week. It's been really fascinating, and I'm I'm certainly glad that we get to touch base with you guys, not just in terms of unpacking the concept, which is what we did last year, but now touching base on that. Let's look at a mark-to-market. What's actually changed in the market? Does this actually make sense? This has been a very valuable discussion for me personally, so I'd just like to thank you for joining us here on, on Magic Markets and sharing some of that update, some of the view that you guys at the Westbrook team are seeing on the ground sitting in the UK. This has been enlightening for me. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Always a pleasure. And for those looking for more information on Westbrook, I think find them on you know LinkedIn. I'd love to point you there, but LinkedIn is not my game. But Twitter is. I love Twitter, as regular listeners will know. And that is Wham, W-A-A-M underscore S-A. I'm sure if you search Westbrook on LinkedIn, you will find that as well. And of course, you can always go to the website, which is westbrook.co.za. Go learn all about alternative asset management. And of course, go back and listen to all the Magic Market shows on which we've had Westbrook team members. It is a wealth of information for anyone interested in actually private deal making, to be honest. There's so much to be learned there. So thank you so much, guys. And we look forward to doing this again. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. 
please speak to your personal financial advisor.